Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to our service and happy Father's Day. Hope everybody is has remembered that it's Father's Day and glad that you're here. You know, I was planning to prank all the fathers a little bit this morning. I thought better about it, but what I was going to do is tell them, it was reminding them that, you know, as mothers come on Mother's Day, they all get a flower, right? Remember that? So I'm going to tell the guys, all the fathers here are going to get a cordless drill. And uh, then I was going to say, it's a Fisher-Price cordless drill. But then I thought that would disappoint a lot of little kids, so I'm not going to do that. But uh, so you fathers that are here, glad to see you. I'm pretty sure that the fathers in this room are all above average, right? Yeah, for sure. And you all have a father, and those fathers all fall somewhere on a scale of 1 to 10, right? Yeah, think about that for a minute. So some of you might have a father who was down lower, but you know, I'm praying that today you will be able to think of at least one thing that you're thankful for for your father and focus on that today. And I think many of you in this room have a relationship and know your heavenly father. And that's why we're here today is to provide some praise and admiration for our heavenly father. And he is one that is on a scale of 1 to 10. He defines 10, I think. So that's what we're here this morning. So we are going to um, off, to start our service with some praise and worship. So what we're going to do with the first two songs, we are going to call each other to worship our Heavenly Father. So if you would, please stand and we'll sing together um, a couple songs that will call ourselves to worship.
so much. Please have a seat. And at this time, we've got something a little bit different. Um, I don't know how many of you have been going through the Bible, reading the Bible through a year plan that Pastor Tim invited us to join on the Christmas Eve service. So it's by the Bible Project, and I found it the best one I've ever done because there are videos on probably 70% of the days, a video that the Bible Project does that sets the stage. It either tells the design and theme of the book or some theme that's in the Bible that you can see it working out through passages. And then you click the next arrow and it takes you to the passages that you're supposed to read that come alive and make a lot more sense because you've watched the video. Anyway, that's a little plug for that. If anybody wants to find out how to get into that, see me after the service. I'll be glad to uh, give you a little tutorial. But there was one a couple weeks ago when we were in the book of Proverbs about Lady Wisdom. I thought, you know, I think our people would enjoy watching that. So we're going to watch that, then we'll do a responsive reading of some scripture that's related to that, and then we'll have some announcements. So, Al, if you could play In the story of the Bible, God creates the world by carving order out of disorder and darkness. Like an artist creating a place where life can flourish. Right. And still today, God's ordering power is at work, preventing the cosmos from slipping back into chaos and nothingness. And in the Bible, humanity has a key role to play in this ordering work. But to partner with God in that ongoing ordering of the cosmos, we need to be mentored by Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom? Who's that? Let's find out in Proverbs chapter 8. So within the Hebrew Bible, there's a scroll called Proverbs. It's about gaining wisdom. And while most of the scroll is a collection of short Proverbs, it begins with nine chapters of speeches in which we meet a cast of symbolic characters. There's a wise fatherly king and a woman named Lady Wisdom. And they're offering divine wisdom that leads to stability and life. There's also a wicked man and a wily woman called Lady Folly. And their way of life is attractive, but it leads to disorder and death. Okay, so these speeches force you to make a choice. Whose advice will you listen to? Right, these contrasting couples are like poetic symbols of the many voices out there telling us how to be human. And in Proverbs, they're all competing for the attention of you, the reader, who's referred to throughout as my son. Got it. Now... All these speeches can be grouped into three main sections. And for now, we're going to focus on Proverbs chapter 8. It's a long speech from this majestic woman. Lady Wisdom. She's God's wisdom personified. And she stands at a crossroads on a tall hill, inviting you to enter into God's sacred city. Doesn't wisdom cry out and understanding raise her voice? At the road's high point, at the crossroads, she stands... Besides the gates going into the city, at the entrance, she shouts. And then Lady Wisdom begins her speech. 
It has four main parts. In the first part, wisdom declares her value. Choose my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than pure gold. For wisdom is more precious than pearls, and nothing you desire compares with her. So living by God's wisdom can lead to the most valuable things in life. Healthy relationships, moral integrity, a stable, fruitful life. You can't buy those things with money. Right. And in the third part of her speech, she repeats the same idea. Wealth and honor are with me, enduring abundance and justice. My fruit is better than pure gold, and what I offer surpasses silver. Now, let's back up to the second part of her speech, where we learn that God's wisdom is very practical. In fact, humans depend upon it every day, whether they know it or not. Through me, kings reign, and rulers issue decrees that are just. Through me, princes rule, and nobles, all who judge with justice. Now, that phrase, issue decrees, comes from the Hebrew word chakak. It means literally to carve or engrave. It refers to how ancient kings would carve laws of justice onto tablets. So a good leader confronts disorder and injustice by creating laws that are just. And when they do so, they're drawing on God's wisdom. Right. Wise leaders become images of God, who also creates, by his decrees, carving order out of chaos. But God's decrees aren't written on tablets. Rather, they're woven into the fabric of creation itself. In fact, that's what the final part of Lady Wisdom's speech is all about. She claims that she was there with God in the beginning. Yahweh brought me forth as the firstborn of his way, before his deeds of old. In the remote past, I was formed from the beginning, from the earliest times of the land. Now watch, she's going to repeat that Hebrew word, chakak, to describe how God carved order into the world. When he established the skies, I was there. When he carved a horizon on the face of the deep waters. Here God is splitting the dark, chaotic waters in half, making the waters above and below. And he carved a boundary for the sea, so the waters don't cross his command. This is God creating the boundary of the dry land, holding back the sea so humans can flourish in peace. When he carved the foundations of the land, I was there. The biblical authors imagined that the dry land was supported by pillars below to keep it from sinking back into the chaotic sea. So this is the three-tiered cosmos described all over the Bible. Right. It's how the Israelites and all their ancient neighbors imagined the world. And notice, the dry land is sustained and protected from the surrounding chaos only by God's wise carving abilities. That's beautiful. It is. And it's worth celebrating. Like Lady Wisdom says, I was beside him growing up, and I was his daily delight, celebrating before him the entire time, celebrating the inhabited world of the land, delighting in human beings. God's wisdom delights in the ordered universe, and also in humanity. Yes, because humans are the image of God, called to live by divine wisdom as they carve out their own little spots here in his world. But humans often reject God's wisdom, doing what's right in our own eyes. And in the Bible, that's how humans drag creation back into chaos and darkness. It's only when we live by God's wisdom that we join his project of ordering the world creating space and communities where all of God's creatures can flourish in peace. Or, as Lady Wisdom puts it at the conclusion of her speech, The one who finds me finds life. 
and receives favor from Yahweh. But the one who forfeits me hurts themselves. Those who hate me love death. So every day, Lady Wisdom presents us with a choice. Will I live by God's wisdom and contribute order, beauty, and justice to the world? Or am I going to live selfishly by my own wisdom and pull creation back into chaos from which it came? That's the decision that lay before humans throughout the story of the Bible and still today. Which way will you choose? Lady Wisdom is waiting for our answer. So let's read some scripture together. We'll do it responsively. Um, related to this theme of wisdom. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. Good to be gathered with you here this morning as we come together and as we seek to put into practice some of these things we just read and as we'll read above from God's Word this morning. If you're new or visiting, my name is uh, Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us. If you are visiting, if there's anything you want to communicate with the church, there's a Connect card on the seat in front of you. We'd invite you to fill that out. Let us know anything you'd like, to, like us to know. And you can drop those in the wooden boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Uh, those boxes are also where um, tithe and offering can go if you want to contribute to what we're doing here as a church. A couple of announcements for you this morning, but I'm not going to make either one of them. So I'm going to invite up first uh, Bob and Melissa Warner, and they're going to come tell us a little bit about a missions opportunity coming up. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. So um, this is my wife, Melissa, and I'm Bob Warner, and we are the co-chairs of the missions committee this year. And one of the missions that our church has supported for a long time is called Camp Daniel. So Camp Daniel is an organization that supports and works with the disabled community, and the physical camp is located over in Athelstein, Wisconsin, near Crivets. Again, our church has had a long history of not only supporting them financially, but the biggest need that any camp has is volunteers. And so I see Fran out there and you know, Mike Silber, um, Ellis's, myself. 
um, a number of us are going over starting the week of June 26th. Yeah, so a week from tomorrow. And this year they're putting on five one-week camps for disabled. And the way it works is, you know, an able-bodied person is paired with a, a camper with a disability. And that's how you, you support them for the whole week. Um, again, we've done this a long time. One of our one of our teenagers went over to volunteered for a week and ended up marrying the camp director's daughter. <laughs> that's, that's Evan Hartwig. And so you, you, you never know what God's going to do with the week of volunteering. And now Melissa's going to share a way that you can get involved with camp that should prove to be more exciting than The Price is Right. <laughs> um, so, Bob, um, every summer and a group of people from our church and from all over um, give a week of their time to be counselors and my ministry for Camp Daniel is offering to take people over who would like to experience camp for a day who would like to uh, see what it's like and um, enjoy the opportunity to see this really thriving ministry so I'm going to be taking a van full of people over on Thursday June 29th we'll leave church at 9:30 in the morning we'll be back at 10 p.m. It's a full day. I know that seems like a chunk of time. It takes about an hour and a half to get there. And I think it's really nice to have somebody that can take you over and kind of show you the ropes. Um, you can be as involved that day as you wish, the day that we would be going over. Uh, every meal at Camp Daniel is themed, so it's going to be German lunch. Um, and then after lunch, there's ladies' tea, so all of the campers will be going to a high tea and uh, the guys will be doing a tailgate, and I asked the director, what, what does that mean that the, the male campers are going to be doing a, a tailgate? And he said, they're going to be doing bacon. They're going to be eating bacon and playing cornhole. <laughs> and then at 5 p.m. or 4 p.m., there's going to be a um, talent show, and if you haven't been to a talent show at Camp Daniel, you really need to go and see the amazing talent of the campers. And then dinner. Tony and Tina's wedding reenactment, if those of you are familiar with that Broadway musical. And there will be a full-fledged wedding reception that campers will get dressed and be formal, and it'll be fun. And we get to be involved with those things that day as much or as little as we would like to. And then after dinner is a campfire, uh, pontoon boat rides, and s'mores. So that would, it's just a sample of what we would be doing that day. If you would like to join me on that, would you please let me know? And if you're unable to join that day, I would suggest that you let me know because there are, like Bob said, five sessions, and I'm willing to go over every session to bring a group of people because it's just that important in God's kingdom. So uh, let me know if you'd like to join us. We would love to take a full van over each session for a day. The other, other announcement this morning is uh, Pastor Ian could come and talk a little bit about VBS. Good morning. So VBS is less than a month away. We are hosting VBS here July 10th through the 13th. It's, um, there's, a, uh, <clears throat> there's a blurb about it on the back of your bulletin. Um, this year's theme is wildlife, and it's going to be wild. It's going to be great. Um, you can sign up on our website if you just pull down the uh, ministries tab and click on children's ministry. Um, there's our registration form right there. The cost is $5 per family. 
And with that, we need some volunteers. So anyone who would like to volunteer, please see me afterwards. I have a sign-up for you. Um, it, VBS is always a great time and super fun during the summer. So if you are interested and can do it, uh, it's a great opportunity to connect with kids both from our church and our community, and it's just a great time. So please see me if you want to volunteer. Well, again, we're thankful you're here with us to worship God together. And as we continue in worship this morning, would you join me in a time of prayer? Father, we, as always, thank you for this time that we have to come together as your people gather together in this place. We thank you for the work you've done in each one of our lives to guide us here today. That whatever else is going on in our lives, whatever we've been through, you have us here now for a purpose this morning. But Father, I pray that you would continue to work, that you would do the work you desire to do in each of our hearts this morning. Whether that be through singing, whether that be through the power of your word, or whether that be through fellowship that takes place after the service, would you be at work to bring about your good purposes in our lives? Would you be at work to conform us more and more into the image of Christ? Otherwise, you help us to know you and love you more deeply through all that takes place here this morning. Father, we pray for, for those in our church who are hurting, who are suffering, who are going through hard times. I think especially of, of the Miller family this morning as they recover from and try to move on from losing their house in a fire and just all that that entails. We pray for others who are wrestling with medical concerns or physical ailments or other challenges. Pray that you would be at work to give them a strong sense of your presence with them, even in the midst of trials and tribulations. I pray that we would turn to you for comfort and encouragement in our times of trial. Father, I pray that we would trust that you are faithful and good even when things are hard. That we will look forward to the day when you will set all things right, when you will make all things new, and we will live looking forward to that day. Father, as we worship now, would our hearts be drawn to you? Would our words bring you glory and honor? And would you be glorified in all that takes place here this morning? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're able to stand, let's stand again and let's worship our God. There is strength within the sorrow.
in your sovereignty you can use and turn even our trials and our tribulations for good and that there is coming a day when you will wipe away every tear and we will in that day gather around your throne and stand in awe of your holy splendor together Father, until that day comes, would we live lives that seek to bring you glory and are faithful to the life that you have called us to live. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as many of you know, before I was a pastor, I was originally a, an elementary school teacher. So I went to did my undergrad for elementary education, and I taught while I was in seminary for three years down in Louisville, Kentucky. I taught at a, a Christian school down in Louisville, taught fifth grade. And it's a bit surreal for me, but a couple of weeks ago, the second of my three fifth grade classes graduated from high school. And it's, like, it's just shocking that they're already that old, and I'm still connected with some of them in a variety of ways, either through their parents or whatever it is. So I know like, what some of them are up to, what some of them are doing. And it's interesting for me to see how kids I knew as 10 and 11-year-olds have grown up and what they've like, developed into as they've gotten older. And some of them have developed in ways that are entirely predictable. Right? Like, like Isabel, right, who was already smarter than me as a fifth grader. Right? Like the fact that she's going to Harvard, not surprising. Right? Like, seriously, like, if I was grading her work and she got something wrong, my automatic assumption was that the answer key was wrong and not her. Like, that was her level of, it was just ridiculous. Right? On the other hand, we have some of my students, like, the way they developed is a little bit more surprising. Right? I think of Matthew, who, who hated to do really all work, right? but especially math. It just, like, could not be bothered to do math. And he's going to the University of Kentucky to get a degree in engineering. Like, and like, how is that happening? Like, trying to teach him long division shaved years off my life. Right? And now he's going to go use math to design buildings? Like, that doesn't make sense. Right? So we had like thinking about all these students, and the thought occurred to me that if I was like, to go back to teaching... I think I'd be a better teacher now, having seen how some of these students turned out 10 years later. In particular, I think I'd be more willing to, to keep working with my more challenging students, like Matthew, knowing that there is hope for them. Like, having seen kind of the big picture of how many of these students turned out, I think it would give me a conviction to be faithful and present with some of those more challenging students. And the same thing is true in so much of life. Like, like, if we take time to zoom out and see the big picture, it helps us be, be faithful in the nitty-gritty of all the annoying little details we have to do throughout the day. But when we lose sight of the big picture, then finding the motivation to do the mundane and the, the frustrating tasks of life is definitely a little bit more difficult. And maybe that's Nowhere more true than in our walk with Christ and in our, our faith. Right? If we lose sight of the big picture, right? if we lose sight of Christ and who He is, 
then finding the willpower to live the life that God has called us to live is next to impossible. In today's passage in the book of Philippians, we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And this passage we're going to read is it's a very practical passage. Right? It's, a, it's a call to live a certain way. It's all about how we ought to live our life. Right? The very first verse, he, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if we read that verse by itself, our natural inclination is to try to will ourselves or force ourselves to live this way while forgetting the big picture. It's extremely important that that we zoom out and we recognize and give proper attention to the very first word of this verse, which is, therefore. That therefore points us backwards to what Paul has just said. In case you weren't here last week, or in case you've forgotten what my sermon was about, not that you'd forget anything I ever say, but just in case, let me remind you what Paul said right before. So this therefore points back to these verses. Paul said this in last week's sermon. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That that passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is one of the clearest and most captivating and beautiful pictures of who Jesus is in the entire Bible. Like it lays out all that Jesus did for us. And so we come to verse 12 this morning, and Paul says, Therefore, he's saying, in light of who Jesus is, right, in light of what Jesus has done for you, in light of the fact that Jesus is, in very nature, God, and that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be you for his own advantage. And in light of the fact that Jesus made himself nothing for you, and he took on the nature of a servant for you, in light of all of that, in light of the fact that he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins, in light of the fact that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, in light of all of that, then... Therefore, this is how you ought to live. In light of that, therefore, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that therefore is so important. Before we get to obedience, we must have this picture of who Jesus is. The Paul says, therefore, work out your salvation. And you may hear that statement, right? Work out your salvation. You may think, 
wait a minute. I thought, I thought salvation was by grace through faith and not by works. What does Paul mean by work out your salvation? We'll talk about that in, in just a minute. But, but for now, I just want us to see the importance of that therefore. And to see the connection between who Jesus is and how we ought to live our lives. We can't separate the two things. As we get into the rest of this passage, we can't lose sight of the fact that everything that Paul is going to tell us in today's passage about how we ought to live is set in light of the glories of Christ that he has just extolled in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Trying to live a morally upright life without a view of Jesus will never work. So as we go through this passage this morning, I just want to keep that therefore and everything that comes before it firmly planted in our minds. With that said, let's, let's see what Paul has to say to us this morning. Again, in verse 12, he said, Therefore, my dear friend, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he goes on to say, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. If there's just one thing that would stick in your head this morning from this sermon, as you leave this morning, I just hope that this one thing would stick. It'd be this, right? that as the people of God, we are called to work out while God works in. And the balancing of those two things, our working out and God working in, are incredibly important. Paul calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the reason he says that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling is that God is working in us already. God is working in us to enable us and equip us to do the things that he has called us to do. That this command right, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is the, the command that kind of sets the stage for the whole passage. It's the command that kind of overhangs and over, it's the overarching principle over the whole passage. And then the rest of this paragraph, Paul gives us one practical, kind of applicable way that we can do this, that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then he tells us what happens, why it's important that we are indeed obedient. And so this morning, I just want to walk through this passage with you and, and look at this, this command with you. Just consider what exactly Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then I want to just look at the, the specific application that Paul gives us this morning. 
And I want to look at what Paul said the result will be if we are indeed obedient and work out our salvation. We start with the command that Paul gives us, right? To work out our salvation. So as I mentioned, right, the, the primary challenge with this verse is understanding what exactly Paul means when he says, work out your salvation. What does that mean to work out your salvation? And how does working out your salvation fit with the traditional Christian view that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not based on our own works. The core of what we say we believe as Christians is that we are sinful people. That we cannot be good enough on our own to earn salvation in our own power. We can't work our way to salvation. We need Jesus to, to live the perfect life we were supposed to live. We need Jesus to die on the cross in our place to forgive our sins. Like that's the heart of what we believe, that we can't earn, we can't work our way to salvation. In Ephesians, the same Paul who wrote this letter writes another letter, and he says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. If that's true, what does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation? We see part of the answer in verse 13. Right after Paul says, work out your salvation, he goes on to say, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And just that the the therefore at the very beginning of this passage was important, this for at the beginning of verse 13 is also incredibly important. Because this for tells us that our working out our salvation is a response to God. It is a response to God working in us to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. We can work out our salvation only because God is already at work in us through the power of His Holy Spirit. Or through the power of the Holy Spirit that we received when we trusted in Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who is now at work in us to enable us and empower us to work out our salvation. In your bulletin, there's a couple of quotes from authors that I think help us understand this idea. The first one from the pastor Stephen Lawson, who says this. In the Bible, salvation is represented in three different ways. That's past, present, and future. These three designations involve justification, sanctification, and glorification. In justification, believers are saved immediately from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, they are saved progressively from the power and practice of sin. And in glorification, they are saved ultimately from the presence of sin. The mention of salvation here in this verse points to their sanctification in daily Christian living. They were not to work for their salvation, but to work out their salvation. They were to work out what God had already worked in. The Bible talks about salvation as a past, present, and future event. And in this passage, Paul's talking about the, the present tense version of salvation. What we often call sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. 
the thing that Paul called us to when he called us to work out our salvation is to work in the presence toward our becoming more like Jesus. Like we are to work at becoming more and more like Jesus, to live the life that we have been called to live. But we can only do that because we've already been justified. We've already been declared not guilty because Jesus took our sin on the cross. Those who have trusted in Jesus have had their sins forgiven and have received the Holy Spirit. He worked in us to enable us to do the working out of our salvation. There's another quote, this one from Frank Thielman that I think summarizes this well. He says, How can we work out our salvation if God is the one who is at work in us? The answer seems simply to be to work as hard as Paul himself did in his apostolic calling, and as diligently as he expected the Philippians to work at their unity. But then, at the end of the day, to recognize humbly that any success we have at doing what God commands comes from God himself. His indwelling spirit has reshaped our wills so that we may decide to do what he commands, and his spirit has given us the energy and the ingenuity to accomplish God's good purpose. The result of this is that although at various times we may feel that we have put our noses to the grindstone and been obedient even when we did not feel like doing it, we can, in the end, take no credit. We can make no claim upon God. We can only say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So the the call that Paul gives us this morning in this passage is to work at becoming more like Christ. We're to work at it, but always with the understanding that any success in that work, any motivation to do that work, is the result of God working in us and through us through the power of His Holy Spirit. But that being said, like we are called to work out our salvation. Like we're called to put in the work to become more like Jesus. So the question then for each of us is, am I willing to do that work? Am I willing to work out my salvation? Am I willing to put in the work to live a life that honors God? Am I willing to work at becoming more like Jesus? Does what you claim to believe about Jesus truly impact your life? Or do you just view believing in Jesus and having your sins forgiven as a reason to live however you want because your sins are already taken care of? We're called to work out our salvation to become more and more Christ-like in our lives. That's why that first therefore is so important. Our motivation for living a godly life, for working out our salvation, must be rooted in who Jesus is. If our motivation for living a morally upright life is the applause of man or something else, like it will fall short. But if we have a beautiful and compelling view of of who Jesus is and what he has done, 
and our desire is to bring him glory and honor and pray for what he has done, then, then that is the motivation that endures and will press us on toward becoming more like Jesus. If you're here and you find yourself feeling like, I, I don't feel motivated to live a holy life. I don't feel motivated to, to live like Jesus called me to live. I don't feel like I feel sin at work in me. I just want to do what I want to do. If you feel that way, my encouragement is not just to buckle down and try to will yourself to live more righteous. But the place to start is going back and reminding yourself who Jesus is. Read Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Read the gospel. Be amazed by Jesus. It's a compelling, beautiful understanding of who Jesus is that will give us the motivation to work out our salvation. And maybe you're here and you think, like, I'm, I'm glad Pastor's saying this because like, there's definitely people here, right, who who need to become more like Jesus. Right? Not me, though. I'm, I'm good, but other people definitely need to hear this thing. Like, I think I got it figured out, but everybody else, they need it. Right? If you think that, like Paul gives us one application in the next verse that I'm fairly confident like none of us meet. Right? So look at verse 14. One way that we can become more like Christ, one way that we can work out our salvation, Paul says, is by doing everything without grumbling or arguing. So if you've got that one checked off, you can leave now. Like, I've talked a couple times in this sermon series about like, things Paul says that feel like exaggerations. And this one feels high on the list. I do everything without grumbling or arguing, like, like seriously, Paul, like everything. If you met my boss, if you met my coworkers, if you met my neighbor, there is so much to complain about. Like, surely you don't mean everything. Like, but Paul tells us that one way we work out our salvation is by doing everything without grumbling or arguing. Like going back to my time as a fifth grade teacher, one of the, one of the topics I taught on right, with the autonomic nervous system, right, the part of your body that, that controls kind of the automatic functions like heartbeat and breathing and digestion. Right? And you would think when you teach fifth graders that another part of that system is the complaining organ or whatever it is. Right? Like, it just like flows out of them. Like they can't help it. And it's not much better in the teacher's lounge during lunch either, right? Like, it's, complaining is ubiquitous. It just feels kind of hardwired into us. Like, in recent years, I've tried to reduce the amount of sports I watch. And one of the reasons is that, like, it's nearly impossible for me to watch sports and put this verse into practice. Right? Like, like, I'll either complain about my team that they're playing dumb, or I'll complain about how unsportsmanlike the other team is, or I'll complain about everyone's favorite thing to complain about. I'll complain about the officials. Like, 
There are whole YouTube channels dedicated to people finding and, and playing the worst mistakes for referees and officials make. And the whole purpose of those YouTube channels is to tap into our natural tendency to want to grumble and complain and to argue about stuff. It just fuels that. Maybe sport's not your thing, you can't relate to that, but I think the same thing can be said about the vast majority of cable news. Like, I don't know how you watch more than a couple minutes of cable news and not be driven to arguing and complaining and grumbling. In fact, that's the whole point of those channels, right? That the executives of those channels want nothing more than to make money by selling ads, and they've realized that the way to to draw viewers and retain viewers and drive engagement is through rage. Those channels exist to enrage us and urge us to grumble and complain. And these urges to grumble and complain are, are powerful because, for honest, finding things to complain about with one another that we agree on, it's one of the powerful ways we bond as people, right? Jointly complaining about something draws people together. And we all like to be bonded with others. We like to have something in common. And so when we can relate over complaining about the same thing, there's appeal there. So tempting, so easy to complain and to argue and to grumble. But if we really believe that the Bible is God's word. If we really believe that all scripture is God-breathed, then that includes this verse. Paul says, do nothing, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Everything. I just urge you to try to put this verse into practice, to work at putting this verse into practice, to strive to do everything without grumbling or arguing. And it won't be easy. It will be work. It is part of working out our salvation. And you will likely fail often. But in those moments when we do fail, we take confidence in the fact that, that Jesus died to forgive us of all the times we fail. But let us not be people who act like this verse just doesn't exist. And I say that as much to myself as anyone else here. Even as I was preparing this sermon this week, so I had this verse running around in my head all the time, like, embarrassing how many times I've found myself giving in to the temptation to complain and to grumble about things that just don't really matter. It's tempting and I and know it's hard. I just urge us to, to be people who work out our salvation by working to put this verse into practice. That we would be people who do everything without grumbling. Paul gives us a good reason why we should strive to be this way in verse 15. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Paul said that if we are people who do everything without grumbling, everything without arguing, like we have the opportunity to, to stand out, to shine like stars in the sky among a warped and crooked generation. Our formal calling as Christians is to, to go out into the world and make disciples and invite people to follow Jesus. As we go and as we do that, we want to make it clear that we're inviting them into something that is better and different than what they are currently experiencing. Being known as people who don't grumble, who don't argue, who don't complain, it's a powerful way of of doing that. Being a joyful presence in a world of grumbling and complaining and arguing is a powerful testimony to the work that God is doing in our lives and is able to do in the lives of others. Paul ends this passage by saying, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is in prison as he writes this. He's facing trial, not knowing whether he will live or die. And even then, he is unwilling to grumble. He's unwilling to complain. Instead, he's going to rejoice. And he invites the Philippians to rejoice with him, even in the midst of his great trial. My hope, my prayer for us, is that we would, like Paul, have a deep and abiding willingness to rejoice when our natural inclination is to complain. When our neighbors and our co-workers and our family and friends who don't know Jesus, would they be drawn to Jesus? Because they find in us joyful people who choose not to complain or grumble or argue while the rest of the world around them does. A chance to be a powerful witness if we choose to put this verse into practice. So that's the the challenge as you leave here. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. As I said, when you fail, and we all will fail at this, and be confident that our failures have already been dealt with through Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the one who lived a life without grumbling, without arguing, without complaining, even though he was unjustly put to death on a cross. He lived the perfect, grumbling-free life we were called to live. So when we fail, we, we trust that he has given us his perfect, righteous life in our place. We repent of our grumbling. We ask him to help us improve moving forward not to earn our salvation, but in response to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Let him be people without, who do everything without grumbling or arguing. Let's pray.
Father, we, we thank you and we praise you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you that Jesus came and he lived the sinless, perfect life we were called to live. So that by believing in him, our sins could be forgiven. By believing in him, we could receive the Holy Spirit who would come and work in us to enable us and empower us to live transformed lives that bring you honor and glory. Father, as we leave here, would we leave... convinced of your goodness and that with that conviction of your goodness would it enable us to do everything without grumbling or arguing as we go out into the world we live joyful lives marked by choosing to rejoice when we could complain And would our rejoicing serve as a testimony to the rest of the world of your goodness and of your care for us? Would people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus because we are people who do everything without grumbling or complaining? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fathers again, happy Father's Day. We are thankful for you and all the work you've done in your kids' lives. On your way out this morning, we have a gift for you. Uh, It's a a Tootsie Pop. Um, So I invite you to grab one of those on your way out this morning. And yeah, happy Father's Day. You are dismissed.